Hello, bird feed. I am here, Letta Gold, and I have a very exciting, very special, very topical episode. I am joined on this very, very special topical episode in which we are going to talk about immigration and we're going to talk about COVID and you might be like, oh, this is too upsetting. I don't want to hear this right now. Well, too fucking bad. This is really important. I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to be making a lot of really ignorant jokes and, and stupid questions, asking just tons of stupid questions. And uh, you should hear them. You should hear how badly I get embarrassed with these stupid, stupid questions I'm going to ask. Because I am here with Oren Nimney, who is a professional sheriff humiliator. Hello, everyone. <laughs> he made a sheriff cry in Boston, I understand, today. <laughs> this this is confirmed. Also uh, joined by Brianna Rennix, who is the hero of our times. You may not know this about Rennix, but that's what they are. It's inaccurate, but... <laughs> it's true. So <laughs> I think we should start by... I think if I try to explain what it is that you guys do, I would get it wrong and I would say something stupid. And I want to limit how much stupid shit I'm going to say in this episode, because it's going to be a lot. So why don't you start, both of you, by describing what it is that you do and the situations that you're in, and then we'll, we'll go into more detail from there. Sure. So should I describe Renix, hero of our time? Yeah, actually. So, I think it's fun if you described each other. So Brianna Renix is an amazing attorney. They are a hero of our times, as was previously uh, indicated. They uh, work down in Texas previously at the Dilly Detention Center, but now my understanding is that you know a couple of different detention centers doing a whole host of different immigration work, including family-based claims and asylum and dealing with expedited removal bullshit. And all of those are immigration words that basically mean Brianna is attempting to save families from being deported back to almost certain death or violence and save people from being caged in fairly inhuman conditions in immigration detention facilities, mostly in Texas. Is that fair? More or less. I mean, these days, I mostly am just talking on the phone constantly and trying to mail documents places because of uh, that's everyone's life <laughs> so okay so i should add brianna is also excellent at talking on the phone and loves it it's their favorite <sighs> pass you love talking on the phone that's, that's this has literally been the worst turn of events <laughs> of all times because i'm very very scared of the phone and now that's all i do ever and i want to die all the time it's fine it's not, it's not as bad as anything else is going on but it's personally upsetting to me so Orin probably has a clearer idea of what I do than what he does, because Orin does a lot of litigation, and I am too stupid of a lawyer to know what litigation really is, because that's, like, where you have to, like, really understand the law as opposed to just, like, making stuff up like I do. I laugh because the law is made up. But Orin's main thing that he does, he just sits around, like, writing motions all day long and getting people released from prison. At the moment, he is spearheading a massive effort to get lots of people released from a particular correctional facility in Massachusetts where lots of people with health conditions have been detained. So, yeah, he's just kind of busting people out of jail all the time and making authority figures look like idiots. So that's, that's I think, the main gist of what he does. It works. Yeah, that works. And I have to spend time uh, every day with these actual goddamn heroes while I'm like, you know, Posting articles, I don't even know. I don't even know what being I do. amazing, bringing information to the people. Yeah, yeah, managing, that's managing all the things. Managing Nathan, yeah, that's important compared to this. That's important. Also, let's be real. We're like lame functionaries within a like deeply dysfunctional and like poison yes. system, trying to make things a little less bad and mostly not succeeding. So, you yes. know, <laughs> it's not. It's not a romantic. It's not a romantic kind of heroism. 
Well, we, we, we discussed this actually before we started recording that, that there is an outfits issue because you guys still have to wear suits rather than like cool, badass, scaling fence Robin Hood kind of outfits. I do love wearing suits. Not going to lie. I don't have a lot of reason to do that now because I'm just sitting around my house. But yeah, well, you, you, you look damn good in a suit, though. I would much rather go to court in like a black t-shirt and jeans and i would think i would feel much more comfortable but you you roll in and it with the the sort of vest suit combo and it feels very like you're you're bringing old west justice to the untamed ice got the, the pistols saloon yeah, energy exactly now, Oren also looks good in a suit but Oren also owns so many anarchist t-shirts that i think i've never seen him wear the same one twice <laughs> and i understand why he would rather be bringing that into the into the courtroom so we've all got our things it's mostly a laundry thing i only have a few suits and and very few shirts to go with them but your anarchist shirt drawer is endless it has it's it has it's, no i have lot. an entire drawer <laughs> So, while we've talked about, this is like current affairs people are like very annoying because we like all really like each other and are super humble and blah, 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 blah. And we talk about how cool are each other's outfits are. It's very annoying. Let's talk about the thing that we're here to talk about. I guess let's start with Boston. Let's start with the riot. I feel like sure. that's a good place to begin. And then we can talk about how hot you are again some more. <laughs> so, uh, when you say the riot, I'll, I'll preface what that means, with, which is basically one part of what's going on currently is that COVID-19 is spreading across the country. Of the top 10 places that are have had the biggest outbreaks, seven are correctional facilities, two are meatpacking plants, and one is a, a ship. So there are seven correctional facilities where there's just massive outbreaks. And you can kind of understand why that would be, right? People are living in congregate facilities. They're often eating together. They're sleeping in very close quarters with their beds in bunk format often and uh, jammed very close together. There's usually bad sanitary or hygienic conditions. And all this leads to basically a, a tinderbox that is has been struck a number of times across the country where these huge flares of COVID-19 have appeared in both criminal jail settings, criminal caging settings, and then also in immigration detention facilities. And so in Massachusetts, we have a couple of different immigration detention facilities. Um, and that's those are mostly the facilities that I litigate against. One of them is notorious here. It's in Bristol County. It's called the Bristol County House of Corrections. And it's run by Massachusetts's version of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, a sheriff named Thomas Hodgson, who has gone on record as requesting to send immigrant detainees from Massachusetts to the border to help build the border wall, has uh, repeatedly brought dogs and tear gas against protesters and detainees in his facilities. A number of emails were released between him and Stephen Miller, where he's praising Stephen Miller's uh, harsh immigration policies. And he's, you know, he's, he's not a great guy. He's, he's, on, he's on the board of this organization called FAIR, which is an anti-immigrant organization that currently staffs a number of positions in the Department of Homeland Security. So he fancies himself part of the uh, architecture of the current vile immigration system, although he's really sort of a, a minor player sitting in from the outside, uh, hoping to be noticed by the federal government. Nonetheless, he's making a number of people's lives miserable because he runs a facility that has pretrial people that are being held pretrial on their criminal matters, people are being who are being held sentenced on their criminal matters, and then also a large immigration detention wing. In a number of states, particular sheriffs or uh, superintendents of facilities have signed contracts with the federal government that allow them, even though they're state facilities, to 
house and make money off of housing immigrant detainees who are there on civil immigration violations. That's sort of the the context. At the end of March, I sued the sheriff in his facility in ICE. I sued the sheriff. It, there's Sorry. a song about it. <laughs> sue the deputy. I know. I also sued the deputy. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so the case is called Savino versus Souza. Savino is um, Maria Savino, who is uh, one of my clients. And we sued on behalf of a class of people, which means, you know, on behalf of many people all at once in one lawsuit. The class of people was every single person in immigration detention at Bristol County. And so there's been a number of lawsuits popping up all over the country um, in immigration detention facilities because of the conditions that I was talking about before. A lot of them focus on trying to get people out who have particularly vulnerable medical conditions or, or comorbidities with COVID-19. But we felt that the virus doesn't really is sort of acts indiscriminately and everyone is vulnerable. And that also the, the primary goal was really to address the detention for everyone there and not just try to pick off sort of the easier cases at the margins, even though those are important. So we sued on behalf of everyone. The judge uh, in that case has been reviewing everyone individually for release. And so far, the case has caused 50 people to be released, which is exciting. Sorry, how many people total are in the in the class? So the, the facility, this Bristol facility is a smaller facility, but it started at 148 people. And it's now, with the releases caused by the lawsuit and some additional releases, is now down to about 80. So a pretty pretty sizable reduction, although still pretty close quarters for some of the people that are still there who are sleeping in cells that are... Some of the cells, for example, are 30 by 10, and they house six people. Uh, so you can imagine that's not a lot of space to move around, and you're kind of breathing on each other's faces. And also, up until recently, the sheriff's office touted that they had no positive cases amongst detainees. That's no longer true. There, there are positive cases. But it was also, you know, sort of a rich claim in the sense that they actually had tested no one. So <laughs> it's a really good, really easy way <laughs> to get no positive cases is to never test anyone. So, and you know, the re- like the reason that we're worried about this is, is you know, I'm, I'm mostly worried about my clients, but I'm also worried about, you know, the the nurses that work there, the guards that work there, getting sick and bringing back COVID nineteen to their to their families, and also what seems to potentially be a worry is that when there's these mass outbreaks in facilities and we don't know what's going on, and then suddenly a hundred people have COVID nineteen, that it's also going to overwhelm local hospitals where people are going to be sent, and particularly in smaller communities like Bristol, you know, the the hospitals can't really deal with. That. Where is Bristol for people who aren't familiar with, or what kind of a town is it? Bristol is a it's a it's a county sort of, sort of outside of Boston. Um, it has a couple of somewhat larger towns. New Bedford is probably the, the biggest town, which is very close to where the detention facility is. The detention facility is in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. There's a lot of um, fishing industry and, and fish packing that goes on there. A fairly big immigrant community, and you know, sadly has has this notorious sheriff who's been there, who's the longest serving sheriff in Massachusetts. So anyone that lives in Bristol that's listening to this, stop electing that person. You you, you don't have to do that. It's also sort of funny, just like sheriffs are funny. It's a funny concept. Well, what's so Ashling laughed at us recently for having sheriffs, and I want to like if you guys at all want to go into the history of sheriffs and like what's the deal and why do we have them? It kind of depends across the country. In Massachusetts, it was sort of odd because initially, before Massachusetts changed over into a county system, the sheriff system was based largely on common law, English common law, as many weird things in Massachusetts are. But now the sheriffs are elected positions that basically run 
the detention centers, they're not really going out and doing arrests, or they're not supposed to. Some of them are very passive, sleepy characters, and some of them uh, run their facilities as though it's their own little fiefdom. Thomas Hodgson, the sheriff of Bristol, is is more of the fiefdom reeve kind of person. His facility has been sued a number of times in the past, as uh, it has extremely high suicide rate in comparison to other facilities, for example. Not great. And also, it's pretty clear that he has a, a pretty strong anti-immigrant sentiment. But anyway... So we sued. 50 people have gotten out so far, which is great. They get to be back with their families. They're quarantining with them. They get to sort of be safe and not in the facility. But the people that are still inside are still in danger. And on Friday night last week, um, I was dragged out of my house very late in the evening because there was some sort of incident riot type thing at the facility and sort of the tensions have bubbled over. What seems to be the case is that the sheriff came into the facility himself as opposed to just his guards and that there was a fight between people in detention and the guards. People in detention are saying that, you know, the guards wanted to throw them into solitary and were pretending that it was quarantine and they're saying that the sheriff himself was assaulting people. People inside seem to have barricaded themselves inside and then the sheriff's guards uh, pumped in tear gas, uh, you know, (gasps) which great, especially for people that may have COVID-19. One of those people did then later test positive who can't breathe and many of whom have asthma and can't breathe. So all swirling around and I was able to depose him a couple of days after that. And then today, (laughs) the day that we're recording this, we won a preliminary injunction against the sheriff's office, which means we, the court ordered something. And what they ordered was that no new people can be admitted to that facility you know, so the 50 people are going to stay out. The court may continue to release people. No new people can go in and everyone in the facility has to be offered a test at ICE's expense. So I am expecting and I see from the sheriff's Twitter that he is sad slash mad tonight. Yeah. Now, can I say I am still not enough of a lawyer that my primary association with the word depose is like to depose a monarch. (laughs) <laughs> so just kind of like kicking him out of a out of a throne and i like that it's good stuff. Yep, that's pretty much what happened oh, yeah. via zoom though why don't actually like for non-lawyers what is depose in this context Sure. So depose means to take a deposition. And what happens is there's a couple of different points in a case where people that are suing um, usually need to get evidence about what happens. Like you you sort of you make some allegations. You're like, I think this thing is wrong. Um, and I have some reason to believe that a good faith reason to believe that. But as the case goes on, you you want to build that record. And so you, you, you ask people for documents, you ask them particular questions. And then you also take depositions of really key figures. So in this case, we took a deposition of, of uh, the head nurse at ICE. We took a deposition of the superintendent. And then we had a lot of fights over whether we were going to be allowed to take a deposition of the sheriff himself. Usually high-level officials, they resist that because they're too important and they have too many things to do. Luckily, we were able to do that. I was able to take it myself. And it was uh, an entertaining experience that I can't speak about completely, but was extremely entertaining. Can you at least tell us if the sheriff enjoyed being deposed he pretended to for a while but Mm -hmm. his lawyers seemed to not enjoy it Uh. and i I think i think they had very different views he seems to be someone that likes to get on a soapbox so letting him talk was something that he wanted and letting him talk was something that his lawyers didn't seem to want because he says stupid things (laughs) do you think that this sheriff likes you dislikes you feels nothing towards you how do you feel he I think it's probably on a scale between nothing and extreme hate. I know that his lawyers are upset. 
And I'm unclear whether he is aware, but this is not the first time that I have sued this particular sheriff, nor the first time that I've sought to depose this particular sheriff, um, although the first time that I've been successful in getting him into a deposition chair. So he may be aware that he's been sued by me multiple times. And, and if he is, I can imagine that he's not happy about it. So he's basically your arch nemesis is what I'm hearing. He very much is. <laughs> he <laughs> falls into that category. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not extremely happy about this. Are you Are you the, the Robin Hood to his Sheriff of Nottingham is the main question. That, yes, I, I, I think that that's fair. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know if I look as good in tights, but... So anyway, that's what's going on, but... None of that is as important as what Renix is doing, which is in like facilities all over the place and with a bunch of different people. I guess the, the, the last thing that I'll say on that on that point is a bunch of these cases are happening all over the country because people are in really dire situations, right? They don't have good access to medical care. They don't have access to testing. ICE is not considering releasing people and in fact continues to arrest people on minor civil immigration violations. You'd think that at some point they would stop that kind of heinous behavior in the middle of a pandemic and that maybe the federal government might also allocate resources differently. If you thought that, you would be wrong. So why don't you actually explain to us what a civil immigration violation is for people who don't know? Sure. So generally, there are two types of violations against laws that the government promulgates. One type is a criminal violation. So the government says, oh, holding this plant is a crime. <gasps> and then you get thrown holding in a Holding a plant right now! Shit! <laughs> and then you get thrown in a cage for holding the plant. God damn it. And if it was a different sort of plant, then you don't get thrown in a cage. But if it's the bad plant, you get thrown in a cage. We also have a whole set of immigration laws. Most of them are not criminal laws where it's considered a, a crime, and so you should be arrested and punished for that. But it's considered a civil violation, sort of akin to a parking ticket. And so the government's justification, I mean, this is all like a little bit of a legal fiction, because what happens to you is basically the same. But the government's justification isn't can't be punishment. The government's justification for putting you in a cage, for example, just has to be, well, you've violated a civil law, like you've overstayed your visitor's visa. So you, you no longer have documents that allow you to stay here. We'd like to deport you. We need to put you in a cage for a little bit of time until we actually are able to effectuate your deportation. Now, that little bit of time actually ends up being a very long time. The cage for a civil violation looks a lot like the cage for a criminal violation. And so a lot of this is is kind of a legal fiction. But, you know, for people that care about whether someone has committed a crime or not, I think that there's an incentive for some immigration advocates to frame immigration violations and make very clear that, you know, people are always like, oh, these criminal illegal aliens or whatever. And it's like, well... Some people have committed crimes. You know, it's, it's probably true. I don't actually know. You know, maybe no one has committed a crime. Everything is alleged. But <laughs> also that immigration violations in and of themselves are not crimes. And so there's no, like, you know, level of dangerousness. And, it, and it's supposed to, that is the way that the law views them. And I think rhetorically, that's supposed to undercut the idea that immigration violations are particularly serious. Now, I say it's a legal fiction because a lot of the, like, there's many harms that the government puts upon you because of these violations. And I also don't think that, I don't think that we should be putting people that uh, may have committed crimes in cages either. So for me, the distinction is a little bit, a little bit squishy, but it is the legal distinction that currently exists. And it is, I think, sometimes important to note, particularly when you're dealing with the law, that people that are detained for civil violations do have a larger, usually have a larger panoply of rights that are available to them because they can't be detained, for example, for punishment. So for example, in 
the case that we filed against Bristol County, one of our arguments is, well, because the conditions there are so dangerous, you've actually transformed a non-punitive detention environment into something that actually is much more punitive at this point because they're facing serious illness or death. Yeah, I think the first the first person to die at Rikers was uh, somebody who was there on a parole violation, you know, a civil violation, essentially. He just, you know, he died because he was in such a dangerous place. And, and it's very, very valid to make this argument that it's, you know, acts as a sort of punishment. So but people can be locked up for civil immigration for a long, long time. What's like average or, you know, just to give people like a sense of what's normal? It can be anywhere from a couple of months, honestly, to a couple of years. I think the longest, I don't know, Renix, I don't know what the longest, I think the longest I've heard of is actually 13 years years but it was a real outlier but there are some there are some longer cases i mean just on death for example before you know the first person in ice custody just died and he was in ice custody because of covid yeah yeah and you know other people have died in ice custody not of covid before but he was there because he had been arrested on a criminal charge that was still pending but you know the the state district attorney that normally holds you wasn't holding him but immigration had decided to pick him up because of that pending criminal charge that it seems pretty likely was just a case of mistaken identity and yet now he was given the death penalty essentially by being forced to live in a congregate facility where he didn't have access to medical care and now is dead yeah, he also had hypertension and diabetes, so was uh, also like at a high risk category when they detained him and they didn't care. So, oh, that's pretty fucking brutal and terrible. Yeah, our immigration system is just—it's really fuck. It's awful. It's 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 a heinous system. Yeah, I think people often don't know or they don't want to know. It's very upsetting to know how how bad things are and how long people get locked up for. It's not a couple days. It's not that people have done anything wrong. I mean, even if they have done wrong, again, that's an open question to what should be done with people. But very often, it's not people who have done anything wrong at all, and they just get put in these terrible, terrible situations. On that note, Renix, would you like to talk about what Speaking of terrible situations. Speaking of terrible situations, <laughs> what are you witnessing? What's going on? Oh, well, so like Oren mentioned, I have clients in a few different detention centers. You know, I'm seeing a lot of the same kind of stuff. I can say that in some detention centers, which I won't name, it's definitely the case that like basically the government is faking having like safety measures in places they don't have. Like I called a guy in detention who was like, yeah, they tell us to like wear masks when we're outside, but they say when we're inside, like we don't need to wear them because no one there is sick and there's like no social distancing and stuff. So, you know, there's like a lot of just, unless like someone's going to come in for a tour of a facility, in which case you would stage it ahead of time. Like there's like no way to actually like see what's going on in any of these facilities. So like, of course, like safety measures are not actually in place, but like the government just says that they are. It's also true that you would think that maybe at a time like this, given the way we kind of have a hierarchy of sympathies that people like small children and mothers would be people that the government would maybe pretend to be concerned about, but they are still detaining people at the family detention centers. There are some people detained at the family detention centers who have been there for something like eight or nine months now because they were, they happened to have decided to be plaintiffs in some litigation and the government decided that because of this, they weren't going to ever let them out. So there have been like families detained for a very long time that are now continuing to be detained while there's a pandemic. I also want to say that like the thing about the way that this pandemic is affecting detention specifically is on the one hand, it's presenting opportunities to try to get people released that didn't exist before the pandemic. So like Orin has been able to get a lot of people out of detention that would have been quite hard to get out under like the normal status quo. On the other hand, the problem is that because most 
lawyers are living in places where there are shelter in place orders, where like maybe your like employers are telling you that you can't go visit your detainees, where like physical presence of attorneys is discouraged in favor of telephonic appearances in detained courts. You can't really physically access your clients. You have to rely on the facilities to actually give you calls with your clients. And if you are trying to like identify new people who have been brought into detention and try to figure out if they need legal services, that's very hard because like, how would you know that they were even there? And they're like also being placed in quarantine when they arrive. So there's like some period of time where like they're probably in some part of the facility where they're not even encountering other people. So it's very, very hard to tell what's going on in different detention centers right now. My constant fear is that like there are people who are just kind of getting like locked up in places where no one can find them or that they're getting like (laughs) summarily deported when they shouldn't be because no one can access them. And along the lines also of summary deportations, it's also worth mentioning something, another aspect of the way that COVID is affecting immigration, which is that we have now effectively sealed off our border to people coming from the South. There's actually like a weird like CDC order that was put out that basically says that like the government can kind of do whatever the hell it wants in terms of whether they let people in at the border or not. And that includes like if they basically it authorizes them to abrogate all our treaty obligations to admit people who are coming here to seek asylum. Oh, fun. Things were already pretty bad. So there are like kind of two effects. So one is that before the pandemic even started, there was this like stupid fucking awful program called MPP, which is basically just like the government was suddenly like, we don't want to admit asylum seekers anymore. We're going to make them all just like wait in like camps and shelters in Mexico in like incredibly dangerous areas. And like they can like come into the U.S. for their hearings, but then we're going to send them back to Mexico between their hearings to wait and they won't be allowed into the U.S. So MPP already going on, many, many tens of thousands of asylum seekers stranded in Mexico as a result of this program. And now all of their hearings are being postponed indefinitely because of allegedly it's like not safe for them to come to court. So basically like all of those cases are now in limbo and new cases that are coming through to be processed. The government under this CDC order now has the power to just summarily deport them without giving them like any kind of ability to like make a fear claim or like do anything. So the unfortunate result of this is that the government already was pursuing a lot of different new legal avenues to try and force people back from the border. And now like they have this really easy ready-made excuse to do it completely ad hoc and just be like, nope, not letting you in. Nope, not letting you in. It's a safety thing. So even as they're continuing to pick people up in the interior and allocate resources to that and act like, well, you know, our priorities are such that, you know, even if there's a health risk, it makes sense to be like apprehending high risk people in the interior who could like damage public security. At the same time, they've made a different kind of calculus of the border where they've said our treaty obligations don't matter our like domestic law framework that requires us to give people the opportunity to claim asylum doesn't matter because public health overrides all of those things. So it's fun how that double standard exists. So you mentioned a fear claim. I just want to clarify what that is for everybody. People come in seeking asylum and they make a fear claim. What is that? Yeah. So basically, if you come onto U.S. soil or arguably the government disputes this, you come to a port of entry anywhere along the U.S. border and you say that you have a fear of returning to your home country, the government has to give you the opportunity to seek asylum in the U.S. Now, they can put you in some different types of proceedings. So they could put you in kind of like a long-form deportation proceeding where you actually are going to get to go in front of a judge to make like a fully-fledged asylum claim. Or they can put you in this like rapid-fire deportation proceeding called expedited removal, 
where they're not going to give you the opportunity they hope to go in front of a judge, but they are still obligated to give you a interview with a asylum officer in order to explain the reasons why you would be afraid to go back. And then if you like pass the interview, then they have to give you like an actual hearing. So either way, if you come into the U.S. and you say you're afraid, in theory, they have to give you some kind of legal proceeding to allow you to express that fear and determine like if the government is going to violate its domestic and international law obligations by deporting you. Are people in the situation entitled to legal representation? It depends what kind of proceedings you're in. If you're in expedited removal, there is no right to counsel spelled out in the statute. So lawyers try to insert themselves into that process in various ways, but it's difficult because the government does not acknowledge that anyone has a right to counsel. And so it can sometimes be difficult to get access to people or to make the case that you should be allowed to argue for them in any of their proceedings. If you're in the longer form deportation process, you do have a right of access to an attorney, but that attorney can't be at any expense to the government. And like, if you are in a place where there are not attorneys, either because you're like, in a really rural area, or you're detained or something like that, then like the government is not obligated to like, provide you with a person who could be your attorney. So it's not like criminal law proceedings, where if you can't get an attorney, like one will be provided for you. Even that is like kind of a shitty safeguard, because like, you know, public defenders, super overburdened, like have to do Mm -hmm. like plea deals and stuff like that. But even that kind of like legal fiction of like, everybody is entitled to legal representation does not exist in immigration law, you are not entitled to have legal representation. Fun. It's a cool system. It's very cool and good. I can see how much you guys like it and how smart a system you think it is. Yeah, I love it. Love it a lot. (laughs) I mean, there's a quote that gets used a lot. I don't remember where it comes from, but it gets cited in like every single legal brief ever, which is where someone said that immigration cases and particularly asylum cases are death penalty cases in a traffic court. (gasps) And that's essentially Mm. what they are. Damn. That's real. Because it's the same like arbitrariness, bureaucracy, like lack of any kind of meaningful due process, but like the stakes are incredibly high. (laughs) So it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Can I ask, why have you both chosen this field? Given how absolutely terrible it is, why is this what you decided to do with your lives? That's a good question. I initially didn't do immigration law. I initially did criminal law, but to me, they're very closely related. And I actually didn't want to do, I, I did very much did not want to do immigration law because of my family's experience immigrating to this country was awful. And it felt like I just, I just did not want to do immigration law, but immigration law has also changed from the time when my family immigrated where it was bad, but not terrible. And since that time, the department of Homeland security has been created. Detention has increased rapidly. I don't think people realize that detaining people for immigration violations was not widespread before like the mid nineties and and then very rapidly increased after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. So to me, criminal law and, and immigration law feel very closely connected. I think like the COVID pandemic is reminding me of one of the reasons that I want to do this work. And this is the work that I am doing, which is, you know, I, I think people might know what's going on from some of the news or from listening to this podcast or whatever, but largely all of the suffering that's happening because people are scared of getting this pandemic because people are getting it and are suffering or just because people are in detention in terrible conditions is happening way outside of the sight of most people. There's just huge, massive amounts of suffering that are happening that you never know about and that no one ever thinks about. 
And I sort of think that's unconscionable. And then, and once you kind of, once you know, you kind of feel like you can't unknow that, you know, and, and I think sometimes that's highlighted um, in really particular cases, you know, like Kellef Browder's case, I think highlighted stuff for, for people about, you know, how terrible Rikers is and how terrible pretrial detention is. And occasionally stories will come out of ICE detention, but there's just so many carceral facilities in this country, both state run, federally run, and then private as well. And there's just an untold amount of suffering that happens from from human caging and from what we're doing to you know our fellow fellow human beings. So I mean, for for me, that's the reason on the it, the work mostly around detention centers, and then and then sort of like Renix was saying, even if you're not in a detention center, if you're getting deported back to the you know your country of origin usually you left for a pretty goddamn good reason whether that's you know an economic reason or whether it's because you're you know fleeing for your because you're you're actually facing like extreme violence based on some identity or just because there's violence going on in a, in an area and i i think we're deporting people back to death without any acknowledgement that that's what we're doing and yeah it's 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 all it's all pretty heinous so th- this this crisis is putting it into a little bit sharper relief but those are sort of the reasons why even though it's a terrible system of laws completely arbitrary and made up and vile is sort of the reason that i feel drawn to it Renix, what about you i've not been working in immigration law for very long i started kind of doing some immigration work right before law school so I guess that I don't, I can't do math in my head. I don't know how long ago that was. It would have been like the like last couple of years of the Obama presidency, I guess. I don't know. The main thing that I think I've observed over the past few years is that I think there's a certain kind of myopia that you can have as like a like lawyer or policy person who works in a particular field where you underestimate how fast things can move. Because I remember when I like first started doing immigration work, it was around the time that Obama was planning to expand DACA and then set up another program called DAPA for like, that was mostly going to be like parents of DACA eligible people. I remember DAPA. You remember that? Um, And I remember I was at a a, like community meeting where people were coming in trying to figure out, you know, whether they were going to be eligible for it to apply for this program and then trying to figure out if there were going to be any risks of applying to this program. And I remember a lawyer standing in front of a bunch of people as they said, like, is it safe for me to put my name on this list and give the government my information? This lawyer saying, I mean, there's always a risk, you know, they're going to have your name, but like, it would be like political suicide to go after this group of people. And people genuinely believed that at the time that like, that was not politically possible. And within two years, it was like political reality. Same thing with like, people thought like massively blocking, like every asylum seeker from trying to cross the border is not politically possible. It is politically possible. You know, Trump just signed an executive order because of COVID that massively restricts like most forms of legal immigration. People probably would have said that that was not politically possible. It is politically possible. And probably they're going to find a reason to keep that in place after the pandemic is over. So it is kind of one of those situations where this is a field where things have gotten, it's it's been bad for a long time. And I don't want to say that it's just Trump that made it bad because like the Obama administration and like, you know, the Bush administration and the Clinton administration all contributed to the situation that we have now. But it is something where if people are imagining that it can't like that, there's like a nightmarish like pitch that the situation can't reach like they're wrong. It can and it might. So it's bad enough now, but like it can get even worse. And right now it's looking like there's no reason why it won't. So I don't know that the law is like going to continue to be like the most effective way to try to like fight this problem. But for the moment, like 
it's at least the best way to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of like what's going to happen next. So also the law just seems like a fairly okay tool at harm reduction sometimes, like getting people out of detention is good, making sure people aren't deported is is good. At some point, it might not even be effective at that. But it's definitely not like good at social change and sort of fixing this thing. Like there's no no injunction or no like individual relief that's gonna like actually cause this situation to get that much better. It's it's all of it's a stall and, and some harm reduction. But those are like those are important things for individuals' lives, but I do sort of echo the like I have no idea how long this it'll even be effective at that. Yeah. And in terms of like it being a like a tool of harm reduction and not a tool of social change. I feel that very strongly. And also I feel it very strongly sometimes because I get people who show up in detention who then become my clients or people that I assist in with different things who've been swept up by immigration. And often the first thing they want to tell you is I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to all my meetings. I would never break the law. I like want to be right with the United States. I like never wanted to cause any problems. And so it's not even like people like the system is bullshit. Like, why do I have to be inside it? They're like, surely there are rules that make sense and I just have to comply with them. And then people will put me in a cage and will like send me back to my death and will like hound me like in every aspect of my life. It's amazing that people still actually think that like our immigration system makes any sense, but it's amazing. People, people really do think that like they can like just be like, you know, good people follow the rules and that it will all work out and it won't work out because the rules don't make any sense. And the people enforcing them don't want want people to succeed. So. Yikes. Yeah. So you think that's the the ultimate problem is the way it's set up and the people who are the architects of this policy, they don't want to allow immigration and they can't at this point, maybe soon, but they can't outright ban it just yet. So they make it impossible through these Byzantine systems and these crazy roadblocks and through locking people up and, and immiserating them as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I I think that the sort of labyrinthine Byzantine system was kind of always a feature of pieces of the immigration system. And that labyrinth has just grown much larger. And then somewhat under Bush and Obama, and then definitely under Trump, there's been also just more direct, you know, it's like a combination of a labyrinth and a giant person with a baseball bat, like trying to hit you from stopping you from even going into the labyrinth. It's possible that at some point it worked better because it might have been politically infeasible to just make the system impossible to navigate, but to still have a system. And now they're also sort of just like removing the systems that possibly like DACA will go away soon. And I don't think that that's going to be as big of a political blow to the Republicans as as, as people think it that will be, especially since it will probably go away through court order. I mean, the flip side, just uh, one optimistic note on sort of change through through legal venues, is that to the extent that change happens, often it happens through cultural shifts. And one thing that law is sometimes okay at doing in the same way that many other things like journalism and social movement building and all the other things are good at doing is, you know, highlighting problems and doing some public education and creating uh, narrative shifts. And so like, I'm hoping, for example, out of our case out of Bristol County, and that, you know, the judge seemed to say this today, is if a bunch of people are just released from immigration detention because of COVID-19 and the world doesn't fall apart, that maybe some more people will think, eh, maybe immigration detention actually isn't necessarily necessary at all. Like everything was fine. It didn't ruin anything. And maybe that sort of starts also along with the harm reduction for those individual people will start leading to a massive cultural shift. Now, I don't know that that's going to happen and I, I'm not optimistic that it is, but I do think, like you were saying, Leida, like that it's a it's a systems problem and so the ways to change those would be 
you know, kind of seizure of power, massive social movements and cultural shifts to kind of make those all coalesce around a, a more just and humane world. You make it sound so easy and nice. Yeah, you just say it's just like three steps. Yeah, you just seize power. It's very simple. There was this documentary I watched, I think maybe with Nathan when we were juniors in college, where there was this interview with this guy this like annoying philosopher supposedly radical philosopher and he was talking about like an experience that he had talking to revolutionaries in mexico and he was like oh like i just want to understand your theory of like what is like revolution like how do you make revolution and apparently according to his narration the the guy said oh well you guys have have mountains don't you and he was like, yes, yes, yeah, you know, we, of course we have mountains. He was like, oh, well, go to the mountains, start an armed contingent, and then you seize power. That's, that's <laughs> the way <laughs> I love that. Like, why are you thinking this is so complicated? You don't have to read dense books of theory. You don't have to know what the word praxis means. You just need some fucking guns and some go, big dudes go, and some mountains. Well, yeah, go to some mountains. Do you, do you have mountains? No. We do, we do have mountains. So... That's That actually kind of gets into kind of the last point I want to get to, which I think one of the reasons people don't want to talk about immigration is they have a sense that things are terrible, but they feel that they can't do anything. And rather than think about it or talk about it or, or you know even listen to a podcast about it, they kind of rather be like, well, but I shouldn't even know about it because then I won't be upset about it because I can't do anything to help. So we can advocate armed revolution in theory, and I think that's fine. Purely as a joke as a joke just some dudes guns mountains we seem to have the ingredients just <laughs> just he just this is a big joke that we're just putting out there but they're water the, guns water guns yeah they could be water guns you know, just some guys just guys being dudes in the mountains <laughs> guys being dudes just guys. in the mountains <laughs> but sounds uh, sexy i know it, well it's definitely it's <laughs> renix is writing fanfic about this as we speak but beyond that, um, or before that step, maybe, what are the other things that people can do? How can they help? Um, especially now, given you know quarantine, and, and what is it that people can do to support you guys to, to help immigrants right now? And if the answer is nothing, that's fine, too. Maybe there's nothing. Maybe it's mountains. I will say the quarantine thing makes stuff hard. Because normally I have some kind of go-to suggestions that I make that I, you know, I know that they're not groundbreaking, but I think that they are things that people can do to sort of increase their awareness and understanding of what's going on and come into contact with, you know, communities that are affected by immigration. And that's things like, you know, going and doing court watch and things like that. But you can't do that right now. We can't like stage any protests or anything really because of COVID. So that's tough. Because getting people physically in a place like gumming up the works is often our, the best way to try and start shifting things around. And we can't really do that right now. So that's tough. <laughs> yeah, I agree with the toughness. I mean, when, when COVID is not on, you know, providing sort of in a non-criminal way, providing aid to people that are crossing the border is a good idea. Doing court watch is a good idea. You know, I've seen some some sort of protests in cars that yeah. are nice and, and it's good that people are gathering. I don't know the effect of that, but I do think there's sort of two other concrete points. One is just on, and it's a sort of minor point in the scope of all of immigration detention, but like I was saying at the outset, some immigration detention is controlled by local officials. Local officials are easier to kick out of office or to influence. 
I do think that it's worth paying attention to the sheriff's elections in your local area or to opposing, even if you don't want to do it through an electoral process, organizing against having immigration detention facilities in your communities. I mean, to some extent, they can only detain as many people as they can hold. So just reducing that amount of space and and resources is, is a good idea. The other thing is, and this is more of a call to the left, is I don't understand how immigration or open borders is a debatable position on the left. Certainly immigration detention is shouldn't be. So at the very least, y'all can coalesce around organizing on that. But I don't understand the resistance to an open borders and pro-immigrant framing on the left. And I, I sort of have seen it a couple of times popping up. I think at the very least, the left should be able to coalesce around that and push for push for those policies. And I think that's particularly important now because there's, you know, like Renix highlighted, is a really easy opportunity right now for the federal government to use the, the pandemic crisis to institute more substantive limitations on immigration and immigration law, but also to institute sort of cultural, social, normative understandings of enemies coming in from the outside, us really needing to, you know, batten down the hatches and hunker in and and really protect ourselves and, you know, America against the world kind of bullshit. I think nationalism has the opportunity to thrive right now and that the job of the left is to resist that. And so I do think it would be nice, you know, the left is not in power. And so us coalescing around that doesn't change anything materially, but it would be nice if at the very fucking least we could agree on that. But what about our alliance with right-wing populists, Oren? We have to unite with the right-wing populists. Everything will be fine. Nothing bad will happen. Nothing bad has ever happened when that's happened. So one thing I want to point out, so if you read Trump's executive order for why he's restricting massive amounts of legal immigration that would otherwise be happening right now, it's the exact same like talking points that people on the so-called left who are opposed to immigration use where they're like, oh, like, you know, there's a lot of competition for jobs. You know, it's going to disproportionately affect like marginalized people. And there's nothing in place that insists that like ensures that like citizens are sort of prioritized for work. And so like the solution in this time of economic contraction with COVID is to restrict immigration. And that's like the kind of like the kind of rhetoric that makes people think that this kind of like left wing, right wing populism alliance makes sense. It's the like most transparent fucking bullshit because the government is just abrogating its like responsibilities to like provide services to people in a crisis. It is instead using immigrants as a scapegoat. And that's what they do constantly in every conceivable setting. And when people who call themselves leftists buy into that, they're being fucking morons. I'm like so sick of like any of those people like ever being listened to because they are just idiots and they also don't care about anybody who is not like in their immediate social circle. So yeah, I don't love it. (laughs) Immigrants are workers and it's so, so easy to make the argument. We were talking about the uh, meatpacking plants earlier where there there also have been outbreaks. A lot of meatpacking plants, a lot of places like that are staffed by immigrants of often dubious legal status. It is very, very easy to organize people around workers' rights. And if you run into people who say, well, you know, American jobs for Americans, which as the economy sucks and, and more and more people lose their jobs, you'll probably run to that argument more and more often. It is actually remarkably easy to say we are in this together. The enemy is not an immigrant. The enemy is the rich people who have put you out of work. 
Yeah. And it's always somehow the same people who are grandstanding about how like bougies don't understand the workers who then somehow are making some weird differentiation about how like certain kinds of workers shouldn't like be competed with by other workers because I guess they their like status needs to be protected. We have to make sure that men feel comfortable and nobody ever makes men feel bad about their real feelings. They're so sensitive. It's 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 hard, you know. What if like you your Pittsburgh what if your <laughs> Pittsburgh true. iron worker couldn't do the, the iron working? What if it was, you know, uh, the person not from Pittsburgh. It's funny because, well, women do make these arguments, but they make them about men. They don't make them about other women. They make it about an imagined, uh, you know, strong-armed, muscly-handed guy who... Muscly uh, muscly's got muscles in his hands. Um, yeah. There's, like, there's, so, there's some weird... It's like a sex thing. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's a real assessment. But, but anyway, I, yeah, I don't understand why it somehow makes more sense to draw some weird, like, nationalist distinction between workers... Like, rather than just treating all workers as people who have interests in common and who would organize more effectively if they weren't arbitrarily divided by legal distinctions and distinctions imposed by the ruling class. So, like, yeah, it's just I, I don't know. I mean, one sort of the slogan is the slogan is "workers of the world unite," not "workers of some random place unite." But two, it's a distinction that just like it just really bothers me because it also it confuses who the like the enemy is very simple, right? The enemy is sort of our capitalists, corporate power and the state. And that's that continues to be the case in, in this situation. So if the question is, why is X happening to my job? It's it's of course not because of immigration. And it is, of course, because the corporations are doing that thing. You know, corporations have open borders. They're able to do whatever the fuck they want. And yet you're trying to impose restrictions on people. It misplaces where our enemy is. It undercuts solidarity. It harkens back to, you know, pretty racist tropes and ideas that you know come from come from the state and from capitalists but also from from unions that have pretty poor traditions around um, engaging with immigrants and um, and also black workers in the United States I've never understood this argument except for perhaps maybe as a sex thing but you know sex things are, are not politics I'm not gonna yuck anybody's yum no look you look sex things are not politics <laughs> but but sex things are not politics and you can think of Zizek as a daddy and that's like creepy and i'm sorry for you and i don't want to hear about it ever but that's not politics but i mean do you but do not ever bring that up because it's gross but it's not politics it's not politics the other thing that i'll say and i i think that there's a lot of power and organizing force behind like workers of the world unite but also non-workers of the world unite. like right like we also we want both you know good jobs for people that are fulfilling and that pay well and that don't discriminate against the immigration status or, or race but also look there's a bunch of people that are going to immigrate here that actually don't work and maybe it's better because you don't think that they're stealing your jobs but also we want the social safety net to expand out to them the idea that there were leftists that were arguing that Bernie should cut back on um, whether or not Medicare for all would cover medical insurance for people that are undocumented seems insane to me, not just because it undercuts the concept of a universal healthcare system that actually functions better when everyone is actually covered, but also because it's it's an anti-human position. Yeah, honestly, it kind of comes down to people mostly in comfortable or semi-comfortable positions, not wanting to feel guilty about the fact that like the world order is inherently unjust and wanting to carve out specific categories of people that they're not obligated to care about because that makes their lives feel easier and more straightforward but kind of shameful yeah and they don't like it. brianna joy gray wrote a great piece a couple years ago for us about 
shame and how hard it is and how it's actually really a bad idea to use shame as a tool to get people to feel a certain way about things. But people will go a long way to avoid shame. And it kind of doesn't matter if you're using it, you know, trying to shame people into feeling bad so that they'll help. People will go a long way to feel to not feel bad about anything. They don't want to feel bad about things in their lives. They don't want to admit that they are complicit in these terrible hierarchies and these terrible structures. But you are, and it's not going to go away because you don't want to talk about it. And you don't want to notice it. That could be someone's sex thing. You know, there's like you could you <laughs> enjoy the shame, like get into the shame, yeah. and and a hierarchy acknowledgement as like a kink would be great. We are not kink shaming here. You enjoy <laughs> your kinks, but your kinks are not politics. We're not kink shaming, but your shame can be kink. Yeah, we're shame. We're politics shaming. We're not kink. Shaming. Unless your humiliation somehow drives you to vote and organize better, in which case, please bring your kinks. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Somebody have an organizing kink? Now I think that they, they, they must. And that's good. That's good for you. Weird, but good for you. Yeah, I can imagine that. There's there's like good organizing, like classic organizing language that would work well as like sexual euphemism. I think we could do, we could do this. <laughs> like what? Podcast. <laughs> Going door to door. It's actually a good porn scenario because it's like the pizza guy or, you know. The pool guy. Somebody goes yeah, around. Can I talk to you for a minute? About- <laughs> is this how we're going to take back the left is make like an epic porno about organizing? Like if that's what it takes. Oh, I mean- could I just have a one-on-one meeting with you just to talk <laughs> about your politics? I don't know if there have. I feel like I did see a study about this or this is just something I've noticed. But um, hot organizers tend to be more successful. Did someone need to do that study? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I- study done. <laughs> I, I like there was definitely a time where uh, me and a friend we were there were these two Greenpeace guys and we gave them so much money they were adorable <laughs> like yeah they they could get it so yeah it was it was a very effective strategy so yeah I think I think we figured out what we got to do we got to make this porno <laughs> it's not where I thought this conversation was going <laughs> when we started out I'm not gonna lie <laughs> look you asked for solutions it's a solution we're trying to be practical this is something that has as, not been tried as close as we can get to a practical idea on how to solve immigration because i don't have anything better uh well on that note since we've solved this go forth and make a porno i guess is our advice but yeah if you're listening to this you've probably subscribed if not subscribe to all the things the magazine the podcast all you know everything we will be putting out immigration updates semi-regularly. Renix does one every now and then. Um, and we'll be talking more about this. It's been a while. Yeah, you, you really need to do another one as well. I'm and sorry, I, but I got really sad. <laughs> and it's been very hard happen. to write them. Stay tuned for when I feel less sad and can write one. Anyway, I've been Aleta Gold. It's been a pleasure to be here with all of you. Good night. Pleasure to be here with you too. Everyone, pay attention to what's going on in your local jail or detention center. Seconding that, I guess. And, you know, if you need to make a porno to get people to, to save the left, make a porno to save the left, do it. <laughs>